This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Well, and this is why we've had those conversations. And let's get into it about maybe at some point we're going to have health facilities, hospitals that are COVID-19 hospitals or facilities and those that aren't so that people feel comfortable uh, going in for routine um, visits and updates. Let's bring in Dr. Dr. Sandro Galea, Dean of the Boston University School of Public Health. Book is his book is pained uncomfortable conversations about the public's health, which, as Jason and I talked about earlier, is so timely considering some of the things that are being revealed or once again reminded and revealed uh, in terms of some of the weak points in our society. He's on the phone from Boston, Dr. Galea. Nice to have you back with us. Um, you know, it's been a few weeks since we've talked with you. You know. What are your thoughts about where we are, how we're handling it, and what we still need to do, especially for the less fortunate and um, the more vulnerable populations of our society? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. It's always a pleasure to be here. I I think as the uh, pandemic uh, proceeds, we are seeing more and more how this exposes fractures in our society. uh, When the pandemic first started, there were a lot of conversation about how the virus does not discriminate, it affects everybody. But it didn't take long for us to realize that the virus does discriminate, that yes, we are all at risk of the virus, but ultimately those who are more at risk are those who are marginalized, who are poor, who are people of color, who live alone, who are single parents, and those who die are those same groups. So what we're seeing is a world where groups that are vulnerable do not even have protections from something as widespread as a pandemic like this. And and you're hearing this from data emerging from cities all over the country and really from all over the world. So uh, I certainly hope that this is a wake-up call for us that says, even in the context of a pandemic, we have created conditions where health haves and health have-nots deviate at a time like this. And Dr. Galea, how did we get here? I mean, how did it get this bad? Uh, and, and was this something that always existed? Mm-hmm. It feels like it's been exacerbated in the last, yeah. call, you know, call it 10, 20 years. Yeah, well, when you look at the data, it, it has been exacerbated probably in the last 30 to 40 years. Okay. So about, about 40 years ago, this is important to, to, to note, the, the American health, American health was among the best of the high income world. Now, today, we are Square, squarely the worst, we have the squarely the worst health of any of our high-income country peers. So we have uh, life expectancy is shorter, we have higher deaths from infectious disease, higher deaths from, non, from uh, non-communicable disease. And we leave about five years of life expectancy on the table mm. compared to other countries. So, you know, I, I would ask you and ask anybody listening, you know, we have chosen, we have chosen to leave five years behind in life expectancy. And now you may be saying, well, I didn't choose that, but we did. You did and I did because we have we have voted for policies that allow that to happen. So it's been about the past 30 to 40 years where our health as a country has been getting progressively worse. And it has brought us to a place where when something like this happens, it reveals this underlying truth. Now, this truth is with us at all times. The virus did not create it. The virus is just exposing it. And what specifically the policies and, and, and maybe the ones that could more easily than others be reversed, what, what would you point to? Well, I think we, we need to 
really look at this from uh, top to bottom. We would mm-hmm. start with the fact that we have a system which ultimately accumulates resources and rewards those who have resources. That starts from our taxation policies all the way to our employment policies, all the way to who gets sick leave, who doesn't, from the state of our education, from the state of our housing. If we really wanted to tackle this, we would say, how do we create a world where everybody has access to high-quality education to allow us to change people's life trajectories? That everybody has access to stable housing, where we have a fair economy to such, such, such that people who work hard can get jobs that puts them on the right track. And all of that ultimately would add up to creating much better life trajectories for people. That is so true, because if you think about it, if you get a good education, you'll probably get a good job that also provides you with great benefits or good benefits in terms of health care and other... Or some benefits. Or some benefits, right? But but we know, what's, what amazes me, and Jason and I um, hosted a quality summit that we did here at Bloomberg, and we were talking about you know how this virus is impacting the more vulnerable populations. As you said, Healthcare, the problems have been exacerbated, I thought you said 45 to 50 years. It's a long time. Why haven't we been able to figure this Hmm. out? We have some of the best and brightest minds in this nation, public sector, private sector. We know the problems are there. They've been there for a long time. What's holding us back? Is it private sector? Is it public sector? Where's the problem? Well, it's a, it's a terrific question. I, I would point to all of us. I think we are holding ourselves back, frankly, because those of us who are in the richest 20%, and that means me, that means you, um, have been too self-involved. And frankly, the system serves us too well. It, it, there, there really is little incentive to push against a system that ultimately serves those who are dominating the cultural business conversation. And, and, that, is, and that is all of us. So we need to say... This is a moment in time which has exposed these underlying inequities and which shows us that there is a country of health haves, which is roughly the richest 20 percent, and health have nots, which is roughly the poorest 80 percent, and say that is not the kind of country we want to live in. Now, we do not want to live in that kind of country because that is wrong. And secondly, because if there is another outbreak like this, it threatens us all. So we're beginning to see with this outbreak that if some of us are vulnerable, all of us are vulnerable. And if this is not a wake-up call, a moment in time, I don't know what is. Yeah, I and kind of so, give up on humanity if it's not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Truth be told. Well, let's be, let's be optimistic. Let's, let's <laughs> say that we, we all see this as a turning point that it should be. Right. And so, Dr. Galea, let, let's continue to look through the lens, if we can, of this, this specific outbreak. And, and I believe we've talked with you about this a, a little bit before. I mean, the numbers in the hospitals... The, so the number of admittances, certainly the number of deaths, I mean, certainly skew much more toward more vulnerable populations as we are at this critical point. Every point seems like a critical point these days. But as we're at this point where we think about reopening and the dangers of a second wave, how do we best protect those who are most vulnerable given the system that we have now? Yeah, it's an excellent question. I, I think the way to address that is by breaking the problem apart into its constituent parts. So number one is who gets the virus, right? So we are seeing that minorities, people who are marginalized, are more likely to get infected. Now, why is that? Well, that's simply a function of the fact that it's harder to physically or socially distance if you have to go to work, if you have to ride public transit, if you cannot work from home. All of those are factors that put you in contact with the virus, make you more likely to get it. So it's step one. Now, once you have the virus, 
the people, again, who are in marginalized groups, uh, disadvantaged groups, are more likely to die. That is probably a reflection of the fact of greater underlying health conditions, right. greater morbidity underlying. So when you understand that, then the question becomes, how do we deal with those two aspects? Well, I think on the first aspect, we need to make sure as reopening happens that we have a clear risk stratification, that people who are most at risk are most protected. Now, what does that mean? That means saying that if we are doing physical spacing, diffusing physical density, that we particularly respect people who are at higher risk because they have underlying conditions, and that we make sure that we put in place opportunities for people who otherwise would be brought face-to-face with greater risk of transmission to work from home or not to be at work and still get paid for it. Now, you know, all of this is hard, but they represent fundamental changes in employment that we should be making anyway. And and we, we should be using this as a moment to hold ourselves up to a mirror and say, how should we be structuring employment so that it's fair, reasonable and sustainable for all of us? When it comes to, as you said, you know, we need to think about destratification, risk destratification, those most at risk. It, is this going to become part of our normal society? I mean, are we going to be consistently, constantly faced with these types of viruses, um, Dr. Galea? So, you know, it's, it's, it's very hard to say, right? These, mm. these viruses, in some respects, are not new. What, what has been new about this one is that uh, it has spread quickly and also that we were aware of it. I mean, when you look back to, say, the Hong Kong flu, which was about 50 years ago, it was very similar to this one, and it killed more people than 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 COVID is going to kill. That was 50 years ago, let alone, of course, the great Spanish flu, which was 100 years ago. So it's a question of, to some extent, there's randomness and there's luck in it as to whether or not there will be another virus like this two years from now, five years from now, or 10 years from now. But the fundamental approach we should take is to say, what should we be doing to mitigate it if there is and when there is another virus? And we should be doing two things, right? Number one is we should make sure that we have public health infrastructure that allows us to rapidly test contact trace, screen, treat, isolate as needed to contain the spread. So that's number one. Number two is we should be paying attention to these issues we're talking about on this call, which is paying attention to the fact to make sure that we do not have an unhealthy population to begin with, right. making sure that we do not have a large proportion of people in the population who are essentially sitting ducks for getting really sick when a virus hits and becoming a reservoir of disease for all of us. That's what we should be doing. Let's continue our conversation now with Dr. Sandro Galea. He's the dean of the Boston University School of Public Health, also the author of Pained Uncomfortable Conversations about the public's health. And Dr. Galea, I I have to ask you, and and Carol and I uh, teased this just a minute or so ago, we have heard so much about telemedicine at this point. I was listening to a story on another radio station this morning talking about a huge increase even with GPs of essentially saying, look, you you need a checkup, you need this, you need uh, some advice, Let's let's do a consultation uh, over a phone, an app, whatever it is, is that the new normal? And does it actually work, I guess, is really my basic question. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question. And there's no reason to believe that um, that uh, some that fair bit of telemedicine will not work. And medicine has been slow in adopting telemedicine approaches on things that you can imagine would work just fine uh, using telemedicine. Now, there haven't been some systematic assessments of some of these approaches, and we have to be careful that we're not uh, jumping wholesale to things that don't work. But the truth is that perhaps from a silver lining point of view, an event like this pushes us to embrace technologies whose time has come. In, uh, from the point of view of, for example, things like telepsychiatry, telebehavioral health, teleregular checkups, 
these things you can imagine how they would work and they would relieve the pressure of having to have physical contact and relieve some of the pressures on health systems. You know, the other side of this is that one of the worries at a moment like this is that because the health system is all so consumed with COVID or at least with worrying about COVID is that we are not paying attention to other conditions that should be seen Mm. by the health system. So introducing telemedicine, introducing telehealth as a way of making sure that people still get their regular checkups, um, that people are still talking to physicians, particularly people are still tending to their mental health. This is a real important opportunity to do that. Yeah. um, And I do think I wonder if this moment is really going to kind of get us over the hump of accepting telemedicine. I just think it's amazing. We're doing conferences on air. We're doing broadcasts on air, like so much. And yes, it's not the same as being in in a studio or next to your partner or your, your teams, but... It's amazing how how real it feels and is the next best yeah. thing. I think much better than we all anticipated. And hopefully that can apply to the medical community where I know I work a lot. It's really hard to get to see my doctors and I have to plan it is, months uh, in advance. It's hard for you. It's hard for you and it's hard for me. And, and there have been many structural barriers to that. I think there's a psychological barrier that doctors who are not used to doing using telemedicine. But yeah. also, for example, payment schedules have not allowed it. Like the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services just introduced a whole range of billing codes now that are allowed for telebehavioral health, which before physicians would not would not get paid for doing telebehavioral health. So I think this moment is catalytic. It does allow the introduction of these approaches. But, you know, Carol, I think to your point, we should make sure that we recognize that these are never going to be complete substitutes for physical, right. for, re- for real personal, personal interaction. I mean, they're compliments, but they're not substitutes. Well, and so having said that, you know, and I was thinking about this when we first started talking, and Jason and I talked so much about wellness and this whole idea of, you know, we really need to rethink, and I know we're pushing towards that, the medical community, to be about keeping you well. And I think if you're doing that, going to your doctor, staying well, you know, that would be an also important thing to kind of move all of this forward. It is. And, and, and I, you know, I like the use of the word well, of course. I like it because the, the title of my previous book was called Well. And, uh, but, uh, but the reason I, I did that is because I do think that ultimately that is the definition of health we should be going for. It is for the complete absence of physical and mental disease so that people can go on and do and achieve in their life what they want to achieve. You know, health should ultimately be a means, not an end. It's a means to people living their full lives and living towards fulfilling their aspirations. So what we really should be doing to go back to our earlier conversation, is creating the kind of world that generates health so that all of us on this call, everybody listening, can then get on with their lives and live their lives the way they want to. Yeah, well, uh, definitely words to live by for sure. And we, I think, are all thinking more and more about our wellness, our general health, and and hopefully that will be one of the things that is a residual uh, effect and and catalytic, as you say, uh, Dr. Galea, in terms of moving us forward. All right, Dr. Sandro Galea, great to have you back with us, the Dean Mm. of the Boston University School of Public Health, also the author of a new book, Pained, Uncomfortable Conversations About the Public's Health. I feel like we're having a lot of those uh, these days. Maybe yeah. not uncomfortable, but certainly thoughtful. Yeah. Uh, and we certainly appreciate his time. It's a very, very busy time for anybody in the medical profession. We know that. Yeah, totally. And I do. I love these big, broad conversations, too, about thinking, how can we do it better? And I think you're hearing a lot more, um, especially from the private sector, from the medical community. And I really do hope we continue those conversations and not only just talk, but actually make these changes. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. And Carol Masser, you know, one interesting thing I was just yeah. looking at, uh, we're going to get a lot of tech earnings this week. Obviously, one of the biggest tech earnings weeks we've ever had. NASDAQ, only down about 
2.6% for the year. Isn't that amazing? Incredible. Like if you think about the swings that we've had, how quickly they've happened, that's just wild. And speaking of a tech world, yeah. uh, I learned a new term from this story that we're about to talk about. ACG. You're so did cool. Did you see that? No. Anime. Of course I did. Comics Anime. and games. Did you know that? Uh, did you I know did. ACG? I did not know that before I read this. All right. Well, so let's Joel get Weber into knew it. it. Yeah. Joel <laughs> Weber knew it. Uh, he's the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us on the phone from Brooklyn. And Molly Schutz, she is U.S. technology editor for Bloomberg. She edited this story, joined us on, joining us on the phone from New York City. It's about a Chinese video site serving teens, but not just ACG, as they say, but there's another element to this. Joel, tell us about it. Well, ACG um, kind of looks like the future to me, and it's definitely what the kids are into. Uh, and when we found out about this, um, Bilibi is the name of this uh, Chinese site. The thing that really came across wasn't just like the ACG stuff, but it was the, the sort of the nationalism and maybe some propaganda that came along with it as well. Molly, what did we discover? Right. We discovered that. So this is a site, this site, Bilibi, like you said, has been around for about 10 years. And it attracts all the, you know, the most popular demographic, the Gen Z demographic. And they're on there looking for the latest Japanese manga clips or maybe Grand Theft Auto. And um, now these days what we're seeing is that increasingly they're able to get a little bit of um, some uh, Communist Youth League uh, clips in there as well. So tell us a little bit about, too, how people use it. I mean, this is a pretty active platform, right? So when somebody posts something, I mean, there's a lot of engagement. Right. It's a platform, um, like we said, it started out mostly for ACG, and now it's morphed more to be like a a YouTube site. They they have a a broad range of of entertainment. It's news, it's entertainment, um, it's chatting. Um, Young people go on there for you know, what you would expect. They want to be entertained. They want to maybe find out about a little bit about what's going on. But for the most part, they haven't been on there, you know, for school or for necessarily an education or hardcore news. But increasingly, that's, you know, in a sneaky kind of way, it's it's how it's turning. Well, and I was going to say, it's very also political. And some of the things that it puts out there on the platform from different um, groups is pretty provocative. Right. They're, they're, you know, that one of the things that they um, had on there last year was a series um, depicting the life of German socialist philosopher Karl Marx. Um, his theories are widely taught in Chinese schools. And so they put this clip on there. Um, it was a clip produced exclusively for the platform by several state institutions, in, including the uh, provincial propaganda department. And it shows a young Karl Marx dressed up or um, and portrayed as a typical J- Japanese manga-style protagonist. So this really it, um, gets you know kids where they're interested, which is in the manga, and then it's feeding them a little bit of the... The, the theories that they that they want to get across, the philosophies and the and the teachings that they want to get across. Another example, um, they had um, a show that depicted a little rabbit um, hunkering down. It was it was using cartoons and a cute little rabbit to depict you know the political and events of war. So these are some of the kinds of ideas that that they're putting in there in a in an animated way or in a storytelling way but that are really sending a message. So, so Molly, um, 
obviously a platform like this um, right now during the coronavirus pandemic is sort of, um, you know, you've got captive audience to some extent. Um, so what kind of revenue um, is this platform uh, been seeing and how is it faring of late? Right there. So what they've found is that, you know, it's, it's good business, this propaganda. They recently reported, had their um, earnings that they reported, and they reported just a little bit more than two billion yuan, or two hundred eighty-two million dollars in revenue for their fourth quarter. That was up seventy-four percent from a year earlier, and most of that came from mobile game-related sales. So that came first, and then some live streaming and advertising. But most of these, you know, you're, you're really seeing that the more they engage um, people on the site, that it's it's bringing in the revenue. They um, they had an example too of a of a New Year's Eve. Um, show that they that they live streamed and that attracted huge audience and huge viewership. I think more than 80 million simultaneous viewers. They had an orchestra playing Harry Potter music, but also a chorus of soldiers singing patriotic themes about fighting off Japanese invaders during World War II. So the the platform that's coming to mind, Molly, when you kind of t- talk about this a little bit, that just obviously also captivated a ton of the youth is is TikTok, right? Yeah. So how do these how do these two platforms um, how do they compare from from a, a from a user standpoint, then but also b from a monetization standpoint? I think, from what I understand, I think TikTok is going to be a little bit more interactive. It's going to be, a, you know, I mean, on TikTok, you can go and you can make your own video. It's really creative. You can do short clips. You can do long clips with yourself or other people. You can use content that's out there, create your own. This site is more, um, it's less, I think, the way I understand it, about creating your own new content rather than consuming content that other people can can post up there. So I think that's a little bit more the different. This this one they compare to a little bit more like a, a YouTube style channel, um, as opposed to a TikTok type channel. With that side of propaganda, of course. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, exactly. With the healthy side, the exactly. healthy side of propaganda. No, it's yes. fascinating uh, to think about. I mean, especially because we know that you know certain trends start to gain momentum. I mean, TikTok is a great example. Uh, you know, gain momentum uh, in China, and then they make their way to the United States, what? and and it uh, it all sort of builds from there. And I think about at a time where we really need global cooperation on something like this, just yeah. coming off the virus, we're going to need it economically, and yet I feel like we consistently have these platforms that just create disconnects and division. And I don't think that's a good thing. All right. Our thanks to Molly Schutz, U.S. technology editor for Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from New York City. And of course, Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, joining us on the phone from Brooklyn. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, Jason, we know the cover story of Business Week magazine last week was all about the reopening of the Chinese city where the virus started, first started Wuhan. Also writing about Wuhan this week on the Bloomberg, Bloomberg New Economy editorial director Andy Brown, who reminds us that when it comes to understanding the virus, Wuhan was the past. It is also the future. Andy joins us on the phone in New Hampshire. By the way, in a conversation, it was picked up by major media outlets around the globe. Last week in a Bloomberg New Economy series, Andy hosted a conversation virtually with the Chinese ambassador and Australian prime minister. So hopefully we can get into that. They talked about U.S.-China decoupling. Andy, great to have you back. Back with us, um, Wuhan. Let's talk about that because we all are really watching that city very closely. 
Right. So this is the epicenter or was the original epicenter of the, uh, you know, COVID-19 uh, epidemic, which turned into a, into a pandemic. And, and the city has, um, has reopened uh, after a fashion. And, you know, it's a right now, Wuhan is, is, is a lesson to the world about how you go about reopening. And, you know, there's so many, there's this sort of easy feeling in, in the West, in the United States, in Europe, that somehow you sort of flip a switch and you go back to life as it was before. And the lesson from Wuhan is that um, that's just a fantasy. It's a dream. Um, you know, life in Wuhan is grim. It's a, it's a facsimile of life. Um, you know, uh, the, the sacrifices and the costs of reopening that city are very high. And it means accepting, in, in Wuhan's case, a degree of intrusion uh, of the state into individual life, which is just unthinkable, um, you know, in, in, in the United States or other democracies. Um, you know, and it's not just Wuhan. It's, it's, you know, the experience generally in East Asia opening up is similar. So, you know, Hong Kong, you've got these electronic monitoring bracelets. Taiwan will monitor your, your cell phone if you're in quarantine. South Korea, you know, will publish vast amounts of data about, about individuals who are suspected of carrying the virus or, or who have it. Um, and will publish this nationally um, in a way which would be, you know, sort of outrageous um, to, to, to countries in the West. I guess, you know, our, our story, it was a very good story out of Wuhan is just sort of a, uh, it's a kind of a wake up call. It's yeah. saying, you know, you really need to rethink about what, you know, what are the consequences and, and, and what sacrifices are you ready to make in order to go back to, to some version of, 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 of normal life? Well, because, Andy, it's such an important distinction, too, because I feel like we've gotten our head around, as best we can, inconvenience, right? You know, that, like, life is going to be different, and maybe we have to wear a mask, or maybe we can't go to certain places, or maybe it's going to be a while before we get to do certain things. But there is a big difference, a big distinction between inconvenience and, as you say, intrusion. You know the world very well. You just gave some, some really good examples What's your sense of how Americans and Europeans will deal with some of these measures that you've described? I don't know. I mean, you know, it, it's perhaps there is a halfway house. Perhaps there is a mm. sort of a, a an opening light or a, a sort of a less intrusive um, way of, of reopening safely. But I guess the you know the question is that this needs to be. Um, there needs to be a debate. I mean, people need to decide what they're ready to accept, the restrictions and the intrusions that they're ready to accept, and, and where, the, where the guardrails are, where the red lines are. And I'm just not seeing that, that debate. Right. Um, you know, but, but also the, this sort of, um, just the tenor, the quality of life, that I'm not sure people... You know, if you, the, our reporting was very vivid out of, out of Wuhan. Our reporters went through factories and discovered these sort of silent, sort of dystopian places where workers are not allowed to talk to each other um, when they're having lunch uh, in case they inadvertently sort of, you know, spread the virus. And the elevators are closed and the workers have got to walk upstairs. 
and constant, constant vigilance, sort of hyper-awareness of the danger, this sort of, you know, it's this specter of disease that shadows everybody. So you can go to a, you can go to a, you know, a, a Starbucks in, in Wuhan, but if you sit there, you're going to be told by security guards, um, you know, keep your distance, and they're going to tell you to, to readjust your face masks after you've taken a, yeah. a sip of coffee. You know, and that's after you've, you know, everybody in, in, in China has, is color-coded, right? I mean, so you've got a, you've got a COVID-19 state. It's green, it's yellow, or it's red, you know, and, 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 and there's a QR code, there's a barcode for this. You swipe in. So, you know, this is having swiped into to, to Starbucks, having, having revealed your COVID-19 status, you're still treated, you know, as, as though you're, you're sort of in, in, in some kind of a lockup. You know, Andy, and I think... More, more so than ever before, we need global cooperation. And I do want to touch on your Bloomberg New Economy conversation that you had, uh, I think, over the past week. And just, you know, how that lack of cooperation, global cooperation, is going to prevent the world from healing on so many different levels. And I do wonder, in a society or in Eastern Asia where you can... <laughs> more easily force people to do stuff versus the United States where everybody is, you know, wait, I have my, I have, you know, I, I, rights to do whatever I want, whether that holds back the Western economies from coming back from this. For sure. So, I mean, the, the, the experience, the historical experience, of course, in, in disasters is that the United States has, has taken the lead in all precisely in order to coordinate this kind of global response and it, it signally failed to do so this time china has sort of this was one of the conclusions of our panel china has kind of disqualified itself from from this role with uh because of the way that it botched the early uh you know the, the there was the cover-up in wuhan and so on and then this attempt to uh use medical diplomacy as an instrument of propaganda um, and people don't really trust the numbers coming out of China. So, you know, China hasn't come out of this as a, as a global leader. The conclusion really was that if there is going to be global cooperation, and, and it is, as you say, utterly and absolutely essential. I mean, people need to get together to figure out therapies and ultimately a vaccine. But if we're going to get that kind of cooperation, it will occur in the absence of leadership mm. from from China and the United States. So, you know, Kevin Rudd, the former uh, Australian prime minister, has this idea for, I think he calls it a, uh, a, a group of uh, a M7, a, a grouping of countries, including a number of countries in Europe, but, but specifically not including the U.S. and China, mm. um, you know, who, who and he's proposing that these countries form an alternative um, committee to save the world, in effect. That is incredible. And and meanwhile, the relations just bilaterally between the U.S. and China feel like they continue to, to worsen and show no signs of getting any better. And that seemed to be a conclusion of your of your panel, too, Andy. Right. So there, there was this sort of hopeful idea that um, somehow or other, you know, in the face of this existential threat, the United States and China might be able to uh, at least temporarily bury their differences and, 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 you know, work together on a cure, on a vaccine. Um, and that doesn't seem to have, that doesn't seem to have happened. 
Um, the Chinese ambassador, Tsui Tian Kai, he said, look, you know, we, we have to re-examine the whole fundamentals of this relationship. There was a general acceptance around uh, at the table of our panel that the relationship has now completely collapsed. Um, you know, and it, and it's bipartisan uh, in the U.S. Of course, on the on the Democrat and 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 the Republican side, with you know both Trump and seemingly Joe Biden competing with each other now to be to be tough on China. to like China less. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's amazing. It is. It is and pretty upsetting. incredible. But as you say, there was that ray of hope. And I read something earlier this afternoon that was talking about how, you know, there seemed to be something of a truce between President Xi and President Trump. And that very quickly broke down uh, at that level, at the at the highest level, but also uh, at the level underneath uh, both of those leaders. Andy Brown, thank you so much. Editorial Director yeah. of Bloomberg New Economy on the phone from New Hampshire. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just got about 11 minutes left in today's trading session. It is time for the drive to the close. Ron Carson is back with us, co-founder, CEO of the wealth advisor Carson Group. Uh, They are based in Omaha, Nebraska, and that's exactly where we find Ron on this Monday. Ron, good to have you back with us. Um, How are you doing? Tell us a little bit about life in uh, Omaha right now. Well, Carol, great to be back back with you and my heart goes out to everybody in new york i know you guys have been hit especially hard um you know i'm going on i had two knee surgeries leading into this so i'm week 14 uh working from home but i would say um companies functioning well and then personally me and my family are doing doing really well well i guess that was in part well time i don't know if knee surgeries ever were totally well timed but uh at least it it set you up to to be in the right position what's the general sentiment around you know sort of folks that you talk to there in nebraska i mean we're always trying to take the temperature especially given this i keep using this term sort of this checkerboard approach it feels like that we're going to take state by state in terms of reopening what's the what's the sense there among your neighbors what I like about Omaha and maybe Nebraska in general is we're a bunch of rural followers. So, you know, for the most part, um, everybody's out. You're walking down the sidewalk. They go clear on the other side of the street. And uh, it's like it's not 50 feet, it's six feet. Um, and, I, you know, so they're very much observing it, uh, the rules. On the flip side, financially, though, a bit of concern for me is, you know, a major case of FOMO. Everybody's fear of missing out you know, on this reflation that we've had because, you know, people either had cash or raised some cash, you know, during the decline. And I'd say the rule following, but having a lot of time to sit around and go, gosh, I wish I would have put a lot more money in, you know, at the quote unquote, you know, market low that we've had so far. Yeah, I do wonder if we're going to all look back at this. I mean, Jason and I have had a lot of conversations. I've had these conversations at home that, you know, you knew logically that certain companies were not going to come undone and that things were going to bounce back. It's just a matter of timing. And so for stocks that had run up, you know, just nonstop, all of a sudden share prices were essentially on sale. 
they they were and some really good companies and this was this is where i think you know for for quite a run we've had passive you know just buy the market not have to think about it has been the place to be now it's going to be surgical it's going to be active because if you go back during the financial crisis some companies became much stronger some companies gain considerable market share i mean look at zoom look at amazon look at these companies that are you know actually going to are unfortunately you know uh, it's, they, they benefit from this, you know, tragedy hitting our country. But you know, it it is it, the fact is that a lot of some of this demand is permanent, but most of the demand uh, is just going to be deferred to a future date. And then other companies are going to pick up the business uh, from those companies, and unfortunately, uh, aren't going to survive. And so, Ron, talk to us about oil because you know that's a story that I feel like again maybe plays a little bit differently depending on where you are in the country, depending on what your business is and how you rely on it or don't rely on it. You know, we spent so much time, I think, in the past thinking about it vis-a-vis gasoline prices. That seems like less of an issue, although obviously demand plays into the equation here. But how do you think about oil from an investment perspective? Yeah, that's the number one topic, right? When we had oil, especially had you know, the May futures trade negative, which I never fathomed in a thought. I've been in this business nearly 40 years could ever happen. You know, now everybody's looking around saying this must be the buy of a lifetime. And I wouldn't be so sure. I mean, we've mm-hmm. got true. It's, you know, it's beneficial to the consumer because we have lower energy prices. My CIO just told me he was driving back from Chicago, paid a buck 18 here in Omaha. It's about a dollar 40 you know, a gallon. That's tremendous stimulus, right? You know, at least we're, we're not spending as much, you know, and, and ultimately that should be a tailwind for the economy. From an investor standpoint, you know, you just saw, you know, Diamond Offshore filed for bankruptcy. There's going to be a lot of other bankruptcies out there. And this is, this is the major question is who can survive and how long will it be? And this is where you need to be surgical about the companies that you invest in. But I think the June contract, um, you, you know, may trade – uh, as, as down as much as the May contract did, especially if oil falls below 10, they, they increase the margin calls from, uh, I think it was six, it was either six or 650 a barrel all the way up to 10. So if we see the contract trade below 13, watch out. Uh, we, and, and you've heard about, we don't have nearly the demand. And so we don't have a lot of places to put this oil and that's what's causing the, this, this down downdraft crunch yeah ron is it time for all of us to accept that you know we went from when it came to the energy markets oil specifically that of course oil is a great investment play we're you know even though we talk about alternative fuels it's still such a small percentage um and the world is growing and you have developing economies like china just coming online increasingly so you know we've gone from that to oh my god we've just too much of this stuff and we've got market imbalances you know you've got demand destruction as well as too much supply um have we come to the end of the oil story are we getting closer to it i think you hit the nail on the head carol i think we're coming closer i go there's a university in palo alto called singularity university and it's a place where business ceos around the world can come for a week and learn about, you know, what are some of the trends people aren't talking about. And a year ago, they were talking about the fact that they think there's going to be more than a trillion dollars of carbon unused because of the alternative, you know, energy plays that are out there. And I, and I, you know, I, I believe that, you know, two things are happening. You know, we've made successfully, we're shifting to these alternative energy sources, which are falling dramatically. And the next generation cares about the, you know, 
that the amount of emissions we put out far more than any other generation we've had. So they're very, very conscious, willing even to spend a little more. So I think, you're, you know, the fact that we saw, you know, oil nearly hit 150 bucks a barrel and then all the way down to a negative number. But I, I just don't think it's going to be the play in the future that it's been in the past. And uh, just about 20 seconds here, the Fed excited, worried about Jay Powell this week? Not worried at all. I think the Fed's done a masterful job. In 2008, Treasury and the Fed um, really weren't on top of it. They are this time. The only thing we think is they may expand some of the programs, which would be positive for the economy. All right. Well, be well. We really appreciate it. Uh, Ron Conway out there in Omaha. Good to catch up with you. Good luck with those new knees. Uh, And stay safe. Sounds like your neighbors are doing a good job with the social distancing. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.